And uh, I'm glad it's not boring when you read the Bible. I love the Bible. I love the Word of God. It's alive. It's living. It's life-changing. But John writes his gospel probably maybe 60 to 90 years after. He's the last apostle. He's the last disciple. But he's not writing it like the others. He begins in John 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. That word with means face-to-face relationship. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness of that light. This is that light that lights every man that comes into the world. The world was made by him, but the world didn't recognize him. They knew him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the authority, the right to become the sons and the daughters of God, who were born not of the will of man, nor of flesh, nor of blood, but born of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That means he tabernacled with us. He pitched his tent beside me because he didn't want to live without me. Come on, I just need to tell you right here that you're the treasure he found in the field. And he went and sold everything he had because he wanted you. He wanted the treasure. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you look at John chapter 2, the Bible says, uh, let's read. Uh, There's 25 verses, and we might read them all, but I think it's significant because I began to mine some wealth of things from this beautiful picture here that John writes about. Something else you'll find in the book of John is two or three times he mentions the disciple that Jesus loved. I used to wonder wonder who that is. Not that he didn't love everybody else. Then I found out it was John writing that about himself. (laughs) The disciple that Jesus loved. Lord, help us to have that revelation of how deeply we're loved. It really is transformational. It's life-changing. It'll help me face any storm, any struggle, any discouragement the enemy throws at you when you know how much you're loved then you have beloved identity. Now, it says in John chapter 2, there are five miracles mentioned in John. The first is mentioned in chapter 2. On the third day, Jesus' mother went to a wedding feast in the Galilean village of Cana. Jesus and his disciples were all invited to the banquet, but so many guests, they ran out of wine. This is the Passion Translation. And when Mary realized it, she came to Jesus and asked, they have no wine. Can't you do something about it? Now, first of all, the third day is significant. They're having a wedding on the third day. Now, in Judaism, the third day was twice blessed because if you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 10 and 12, it's in that day, the third day, where God said twice, 
it is good. He says it about 12 times after everything he made. Do you understand when he formed man, he took something that was worthless. He formed us out of the dust. You can buy a truck dump truckload of dirt, but you can't buy a truck dump truckload of dust. He took something and made it priceless. He formed man out of the dust of the earth and man lay there on the cold clay pallet of the earth till God leaned over and breathed in his nostrils and he sat up and said, hello, daddy. And God said, hello, son. He became a living soul. God, he's amazing. So we, we find twice, it was when he created man that he said, it's very good because we're made in his image. You understand that your past can't define you. People can't define you. What we do does not define us. Our perception, uh, perspective of who we are may define what we do. But we, when we come to the realization that we've been made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, I believe our activities change because we realize who we are. And there's a lot of things in my past that I did that I'm not proud of, but I can tell you that's not who I was. And I'm sure that others can say the same thing, but I'm not here to really focus on that. I want to tell you that God looks at us with the same passion and love. In John chapter 2, he says, on the third day, when they would have, it was the third day after the Passover, incidentally, because it was, it was a time that was convenient for people who, who celebrated and rested on the Sabbath day. We just got through talking about rest. Now, I want to tell you that there's no day that's like a Sabbath day because Jesus became our Sabbath on the 17th. That's exactly right. You, you may be amazed at how many times 17 is mentioned. Jesus becomes our Sabbath rest. So that's amazing. That takes the pressure off. And so he, he comes to Cana. Cana it means the land of reeds. It speaks of the frailty and the 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 brokenness or, or the frailty and the, uh, the, the really uh, place of humanity. Because if you go over to Isaiah 42, it speaks of Jesus and says, he says, a, a bruised reed he will not break. Now let me just kind of emphasize that a little bit. A bruised heart he will not crush. He came with such gentleness, such compassion, such love. So a, a bruised reed, he will not crush. That's amazing. So he shows up in the land of Cana, in the land of reeds, in the place where it represents the frailty and the limitations and the temporariness of humanity. Here is God in the flesh, Matthew 1. Emmanuel, God with us. The Word made flesh. He's in Cana, but now the Bible says that 
he's there at the celebration and they have a master of ceremonies. But there was a problem because they were all invited. Probably somebody in Jesus' family was getting married. So that's why Mary and Jesus and all his disciples were there on this third day, the third day after the Sabbath. And they ran out of wine. Here's a picture. If you interpret Mary's words for today, it, we could say religion has failed. It's run out of wine. I'm about to shout now. So we see the traditions of religion could never gladden our heart. But if you look at Psalm 104.15, let me just go there just for a second. Psalm 104.15, if you'll bear with me. Psalm 104.15 is a prophecy about what gladdens the heart. You provide sweet wine to gladden hearts. You give us daily bread to sustain life, giving us glowing health for our bodies. Now that's significant. Because when you look at John chapter 2 and you look at Cana, they're there and they, they've run out of wine. And the mother of Jesus comes to Jesus because she knows her son. She knows who he is because he was conceived of the Holy Ghost. And she had received the message that the holy child that's going to be born of you is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. But she knew her son, and she goes to Jesus and said, Son, they've run out of wine. Can you do something about it? There's so many people here. And Jesus is so kind and, and he's very gentle with his mother. And he makes a statement. I need to read that for you. My dear one, don't you understand that if I do this, it'll change nothing for you. But if it, it will change everything for me. Now the miracles will bring his ministry out of hiding. This first miracle is going to bring his ministry out of hiding. He's been waiting for this. He said, my hour of unveiling my power has not yet come. But Mary, she didn't really converse with Jesus. She just went to the servants because she knew her son. Come on, somebody. I want to know him like she did. I want to know him well enough to know that he's going to do whatever needs to be done to bring us into the celebration. Because she goes to the servants and said, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Then immediately he says, okay, there are six water pots. They use them for the purification of the outward purification where they would fill them with water and they would wash before they go in the synagogue. It was a man-made tradition like baptism. That, that, that was their baptism, if you will. That's not the... The, the true meaning of it, but they would, they would wash in the basin before they went into the synagogue. And Jesus said to them, I want you to fill those six water pots up. Now they would each hold 20 gallons or more. Some say it would have held 150 gallons. Fill them up to the brim. And then when they filled them up, he said, okay, take the pitcher and get some of that out of the pot and take it to the governor, the, the, the master of ceremonies. And so somewhere between the water pot and their obedience, 
something happened. Something happened because when the governor took his cup, he tasted of it and he was so overwhelmed by the taste of that that was in that cup, that wine, he said, he called the bridegroom over. He said, son, I'm telling you, most of the time I've done a lot of these weddings and most of the time they sell, that they, they serve the more exquisite wine first and then they serve the cheaper wine after two or three cups. But you've saved the very best for last. I came to tell somebody, don't give up yet. Don't think it's over when you think it's over because it's not over. He always saves the best for last. Whatever you've been through, whatever you may be facing, know that he's not going to leave you there alone, but he will bring you into a moment of celebration. He, he's got a way of turning what's... What, when you think about six, six is the number of man. It's the number of man. Six water pots, 120 to 150 gallons and then the Son of Man comes in, changes everything. So <clears throat> we look at 11, it says, The miracle of Cana was the first of the many extraordinary miracles Jesus performed in Galilee that revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So after the wedding, Jesus, his mother, his brothers, and the disciples, they all go back to Capernaum. Capernaum is significant too because it's the town of Jesus. My wife and I have been there. There's a little blue and white sign on the gate that says Capernaum, the town of Jesus. But it, it's much, it, it goes even deeper than that because Capernaum means village, village of Nahum. Nahum means comfort. You could call it the village of the comforted. Jesus shows up and makes that the base of his ministry. The village of the comforted. I want to stay in a place like that. When you think about everything in the scripture has significance and it has real validity because it is the living word. He goes on to say as uh, the Bible says that when the time was close for the Jewish Passover to begin, Jesus walked to Jerusalem. Now, that's, that's no, high, that's no uh, kind of fun kind of hike, you might say, because it's, it's almost 100 miles from Capernaum to Jerusalem. Jesus walked. And he gets there on the day that he goes into the courtyard. And he, noted it was, he noticed it was filled with merchants. They were selling oxen and lambs and, and doves, and they were selling them for, the Bible says, the, the passion says exorbitant prices. They were really, it was a, a religious tyranny that was happening. I want to tell you about religion. Religion will always take more from you. It'll always take more than it should. And it will never leave you satisfied because religion, it's mentioned five times in the New Testament. Only once favorably when it says pure religion is this to, follow, to, to visit the fatherless and the widows. That is the pure religion. But religion always says try harder. But Jesus came 
to do away with the need. It's amazing because I want to tell you something. I might get in trouble with some folks, but that's okay. I've offended some religious people in the past. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He didn't even come to start a denomination. I'm about to preach now. (laughs) He came to to be the, the, the priority of every life. Now, I'm not, I've got friends in a lot of different denominations, but you understand that those are man-made because denominations only started because two people disagreed. Am I telling the truth? Somebody disagreed over their doctrine. So it's important to understand that Jesus didn't come to start another religion. As a matter of fact, he came to start a relationship. And he goes up into the courtyard. Now, this, this, this place was started in 20 B.C. by Herod the Great. This should be about 26 A.D. Jesus is in the courtyard and there are merchants selling sacrifices to the people, animal sacrifices, and they're, 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 they're doing it very, very with, with ulterior motives to make money. They're exchanging money because the religious people would take the Roman coins because they called it unclean and they'd exchange it for Jewish coins because they didn't want Roman coins in the treasury. Come on, somebody. You see how religion gets so caught up in the details of something that'll never change your life. So Jesus sees all this going on. So he plats him a he finds some cords and plats him a little whip. And he goes up in there and begins to drive them out, kick over the tables and scatter the money everywhere. And he makes a statement. He said, don't you dare make my father's house a house of commerce. The, the King James says, my, house, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. That's what the King James says. Jesus He's got a passion. It's prophesied in Psalm 69 where he says, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. I'm so passionate for the things of my father. And then the Jewish people, the the leaders, Pharisees. Pharisees means separated ones. They thought they were better than everybody else. Come on, somebody. So they asked Jesus a question. They said, By what authority do you do this? And give us a supernatural sign to to prove to us that you have the right to do it. Jesus makes a statement that really gets them. He says to them, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. Well, they're thinking in the natural. They said, 46 years this temple was being built and you're, you're saying if, if it's destroyed, it'll be built in three days. Now, you understand, Jesus is not talking about a, a physical building. He's talking about his body. Now, here's a fun fact for you. Here's the truth. 46 years. Do you know in every cell of our human body, there is 46 chromosomes? Yeah. 
he's bringing around a new temple. It's not going to be made with hands. Paul said it. No, you're not. That your body's of the temple of the Holy Ghost. The place that we worship God constantly. We, we can pray always, Jesus said, and we don't lose heart. Why? Because we, we're, he's always with us. So hang with me. We're going somewhere. So they, the disciples remembered the prophecy. They, they didn't understand Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. So it says that the disciples remembered his prophecy after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection because they remembered both the scripture and what Jesus said. While Jesus was at the Passover feast, the number of his followers began to grow and many gave their allegiance to him because of all the miraculous signs they'd seen him doing. Jesus did not yet entrust himself to them because he knew how fickle human hearts can be. He needed no one to tell him about human nature for he fully understood what man was capable of doing. That's my Jesus. Now, I'm going to take you... I said all that. I shared that with you because it's significant. Every miracle Jesus did. The next miracle is in John 4 where he heals the rich man, the nobleman's son. He just speaks the word about 1 o'clock and, and sends the man home and he, he meets his servants and says, your son's healed. The fever's broken. And he said, what time did it happen? He said, yesterday about 1 o'clock. And he knew that was the moment Jesus spoke the word. Next miracle is the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5 where the man had been there for 38 years. Come on, I don't care how long it's been. He can give you new life and new hope and a new future. He asked that man when he walked up into the pool and said, do you want to get well? Only two questions concerning our wholeness. Do we want to get well and... Lord Jesus, if it's your will, the leper, you can make me clean. Is it his will? I want to tell you absolutely it is. Because by his stripes, we were healed. So when you think about what's happening and, and this beautiful picture began to unfold of a Savior who's come and every miracle he's doing. Now the next miracle is pretty amazing too because John chapter 9 they encounter a blind man and the disciples ask Jesus a question I'm going to help somebody with this one he asked the disciples he said who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind Jesus said neither one we live in a broken world sometimes you understand while Jesus tells some people and he told one man, go and send no more that a worse thing don't come on you because it opens the door. Some things happen because we live in a broken world. But I love this because Jesus said, I will take up your mat and walk. Now it's on the Sabbath day. Here's the Sabbath day and the religious people are kind of over in the shadows watching and they really get fired up now because he's healing on the Sabbath day. And not only that, but he's telling the man to carry his mat, which is unlawful. 
Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their hearts. They were religious. He called them, there was one chapter, he calls them brood of vipers. He called them whitewashed graves. Look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside because you, you won't come to me and you're hindering people from coming to me. Now, when you think about the miracle of the, of the pool of the, of the blind man, Jesus didn't do it like he had done it before. Sometimes we need to let God put a, answer, a, a face on our answer. We, we have, as humans, we have a tendency to expect God to do same things a certain way. But if we believe Romans 8, 28, I feel like running right now. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord to the called according to his purpose. If we believe Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you don't know. If we believe Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to bless you and not hurt you, to give you a hope and a future. Wow, if we believe that, we see Jesus demonstrating that because they brought a woman who was caught in the act of adultery in John chapter eight. She was caught in the act. Now, I have, I have one very important question. How do they know where to find her? <laughs> How do they know where? Because they're wanting to trap Jesus. <laughs> Come on, somebody. And we see kind of the answer to that question because they bring her and throw her down before Jesus. And, and, and Jesus, I'm just come to tell you the new one's better. Uh, she's there before Jesus on the ground and Jesus gets down with her. That's right, Mike. I think he got down so he could look her eye to eye. And he writes in the sand. We don't know. We speculate. We don't know what he wrote. One day he might tell us, he might not, but it's, it's, it's not, if it's not in the, if it don't tell us in the word, it's not that significant because the most important thing is he looks up at them and says, okay, they said Moses' law says she's supposed to be stoned to death. They were talking to grace now. <laughs> they're talking law, but they're talking the law to grace, the fulfillment of, they're talking to the one who fulfilled the law. What do you say? Jesus looked up and said, okay, the one of you without sin that feel like you're qualified to throw the first stone, throw it. And he bent down and began to write. I don't know, maybe he was finishing his sentence. Maybe he was writing all their names. I don't know, taking names. I don't know what he was doing, but whatever he's doing, it's amazing because he's, he's showing a love to this woman that she had never known before. And one by one, I believe Jesus heard the thud of the stones as they hit the courtyard. And they left from the oldest to the youngest. And Jesus looks up. And he says, where are your accusers? She said, I don't have any. He said, I'm surely not here. He's the only one qualified to accuse her. Only one. And he says, I'm not going to condemn you either. Go and be free from your 
So don't, don't sin anymore. Go, go and understand that the relationship you have with me is better than any other relationship that you've, you've tried and failed. Whew, so good. So Jesus spits on the ground, makes a mud pie, and anoints the blind man and tells him to do something that's really kind of strange. He's blind. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. My question, how's he going to find it? <laughs> Not only is he blind, he's got <laughs> So I'm telling you, God uses the foolish things to confound the wisdom of the world. I don't know how he got there, but I think his faith moved him. If I can just get to where he said I need to be. I'm going to realize who he is because what he said is going to happen to me. And the Bible said he went and washed in the pool of Siloam and he came back seeing. Wow. That's the fourth miracle, the sign. If you take John chapter 2 through 12, you could call it the book of signs. Chapter 13 through 21 is like the book of glories. It's amazing. So we find in chapter 11, the miracle of Lazarus. Jesus is out of town and his friend is sick and he receives a word, but he waits two extra days. Don't think delay is denial. Don't, don't ever think that delay is denial. I can, I can tell you from experience because he will answer your prayers. Jesus waited two extra days. He's on his way to Bethany. And they think he's going to be arrested and all that. And, and Jesus said, they that walk in the daytime don't need a light to walk because they're not in darkness. He said, Lazarus is... We're going to wake him up. He's asleep. See, God sees things different than we do. He don't see things the way we do. I want to see it like he sees it. Come on, what, what, whatever the world or your situation or your circumstance, whatever the opinions of others may have tried to put a tag or title on you, he doesn't see, he doesn't see it like they do. Because he says, we're going to wake him up. And, Jesus, and the disciples said, if he's asleep, he'll do well. They didn't know. Jesus said, he's dead. <laughs> he gets real plain with those boys. And he gets there and Martha hears he's coming and runs out and falls at his feet and says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus has already told his disciples, we're going to see the glory of God, if you believe. And Jesus tells Martha, the new wine is better. Come on, somebody. He tells Martha, he says, your brother will rise again. She said, I know he will at the last day. She's got faith in the future. She's already expressed her faith in the past because she said, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now she's projecting her faith in the future. I think the Lord sometimes wants us just to live in the moment. What kind of faith do we have right now? 
What what does right now mean to us? Boy, I'm in the good place. So are you. You're in the right place. She said, I know he's going to rise in the last days. Jesus said, no, no. Right now, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Go call Mary. They called Mary and they got professional mourners. They're really professional at wailing and in the house. That, that, that's the kind of people that were around. They, they would gather around people and, it, and made, made it, they just would wail. And the Bible said when Martha came to Mary and said, come, Jesus is calling for you, that everybody said, okay, she's going to the grave to, to grieve. The follower out there. She says the same thing her sister said. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus was grieved because of the unbelief and because of, I believe, the shortest verse in the Bible is found in verse 35. Jesus wept. Wow. The Father feels what you feel. He don't just know how you feel. He feels what you feel. We have a high priest that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's what the scripture says. He feels what you feel. Don't ever think that you're by yourself or God doesn't know what you're feeling. So he says to Martha and Mary, where, where did you lay him? And they took him to the grave and there's a stone I've seen those places. They, there's a little trough where they roll the stone in front of the tomb, a hewn out place in the rock. And the, inside there's a, a place where they lay the, 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 those that are passed on, they wrap them in, in, in grave clothes from the neck down. And then they cover their face with a napkin of sorts. And he's in that tomb and Jesus said, roll the stone away. And somebody says, by this time, he's stinking. It's been four days. Now, there's a reason he waited four days. Because they had this, this suspicion, this tradition to believe that if it had been three days, if he'd come two days, they would have said, well, his spirit's been hanging around the grave. And, and it was just him coming back to life. But he waited four because he wanted to make sure that's not what they believed that that wasn't true. Come on, you understand God is on purpose. And he says, roll away the stone. They move the stone and Jesus looks up and he says, thank you, Father, that you heard me. I'm not praying for our benefit because you always hear me. I'm just praying so they, they know that I've been talking to you. He said, Lazarus, come out. Now, it's amazing to me because he comes out bound hand and foot. He's hobbled out hand and foot. And Jesus makes a statement then that's really amazing. He says, loose him and let him go. Whoa. Make it complete. Do you know you can be alive and still have the past wrapped around you? And it will hold you back. It will 
It will restrain you from doing everything that you were created to do if you allow the past to wrap you up and to hold you captive. That's why Jesus said, let him go. The past can't hold him anymore. Whoa. So we see here, the final witness becomes Lazarus. Yeah, I was dead. I was in the grave. But I heard somebody call my name. A lot of people had called my name over the years. But I heard somebody call my name and I had to, I had to hear it. And I came out of that grave because he said I could. I came out of that grave closed because he said I could. Now, let me tell you why that's important. First miracle, Jesus turns the water into wine because he, he wants all of us to know joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. He wants all of us, no matter what situation we're facing, to know joy. He said, my joy I give to you, not like the world gives. He said, he said these things I've spoken to you that my joy might be in you, that your joy might be full. Wow. So there's a reason. Jesus came as God in the flesh. He came because he didn't want to live without us. He came to rescue us from a counterfeit identity. That woman caught in the act of adultery, she believed something about herself that was not so. She believed she couldn't have a relationship that was whole because she wasn't whole. But when she met Jesus, everything turned around. Wow. I'm going to give you one more. John chapter 4. Now, he healed the rich man's son, the nobleman's son, but he also went through Samaria. The Jews had no dealings with Samaria, but Jesus sat on a well called Jacob's well, and that well is at the foot of a mountain called, called Ebal. That's the mountain that God told the Levites to curse. <laughs> oh, I'm going to preach now because <laughs> he's come to reverse the curse. He's sitting on the well at the foot of the curse. And on the other mountain is Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans, they're a mixture. And, and the Jews would have nothing to do with them, but they built a shrine to worship God on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus sees a woman of Samaria headed his direction at 12 o'clock noon. Now, let me tell you why that's important. It's the hottest part of the day. She had a reputation. She was the talk of the town. She didn't want to come when all the other women were there. It would be in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. So she comes at the hottest part of the day when she knows she would escape the the stairs and the talk. But she didn't know she was going to meet the living water that day. He's sitting on the well, and most Jews would take a, 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 a trail east of Jordan around Samaria so they didn't have to go through Samaria. But Jesus said, I, we got to go through Samaria. There's some needy people there. Whew. He sits on the well, and this woman shows up. 
And he says to her, give me a drink. Do you understand? He's not asking for water. He's asking for a heartfelt devotion. That's what he's asking for. And she's amazed because she said, how is it that you're a, Samaritan, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and you're talking to me? He said, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask him and he'd give you living water. You'll never thirst again. He said, how is it? Are you better than our father Jacob who dug this well? You don't even have a rope or a bucket. She's got a water jar. He said, if you, if you knew who was talking to you, then she said, give me some of that. He, she, he said, go call your husband. She said, I don't have one. He said, that's right. You've had four, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. <sighs> no, you've had five. I'm sorry. I don't know everything, just some things. You've had five, and the one you're living with is not your husband. That's six, right? The number of man, the number of brokenness. She's about to be complete because number seven is sitting on the well. And she says, I, I, she changes the subject. She said, I think you're a prophet. <laughs> he said, she said, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you Jews say, we ought to worship in Jerusalem. Which one is right? And Jesus said, the time is coming and now is. Well, which one is it? Is it coming or is it? Yeah, both of them. It's coming and it's right now. I'm about to get happy, Jody. <laughs> the coming, it's coming and now it, Josie, I know it's, uh, it's, we, we have so much fun with that. Uh, is now is when they that worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. Remember John 2? No longer are we going to need a temple to go to because we become the temple. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth from a pure, from a pure motive, a, a heart worship. And he said, it's here. The time is here. And the disciples show up. And they're really stunned that he's talking to a Samaritan woman. And she, she leaves her water pot. Now, now, this is amazing. She forgets what she's there for because she got something a whole lot better than what she was there for. She left her water pot, run back into the city, and began to, the, the people that she had avoided, now she's, she's, she's knocking on doors meeting people out in the, in the marketplace saying, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. And I like to add right here, but he loved me anyway. Wow. So they all come out. The disciples are engaged in a conversation and, and, and Jesus, they, they asked Jesus about eating and he said, I have meat that you don't know of. And they said, did somebody give him something to eat? He said, no, my meat is to do the will of my Father that sent me. I'm telling you, that will satisfy you when you're walking in that perspective of your Father. When you're walking in the will of your Father. That the will of your Father is to know joy, the new wine. To understand that Jesus came 
to, to bring us into wholeness and to heal us. So I'm going to read one more verse and we're, we're going to pray. Romans 8. Let's revisit. We got to revisit this. In verse 14, I know this is going to help somebody. All these people that Jesus had healed in John, some of them were ceremonially unclean. Some of them were outcast. Some of them were outcast of society and some of them were just broken. All of them were broken people and they were hurting so the Bible said in verse 14, Paul is writing, the mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. Now watch. You did not receive the spirit of religious duty. You didn't receive the spirit to try harder. You didn't receive that spirit because I've discovered one thing about myself. I can't fix me. I can't fix me. So he says, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. Let me, let me ask you, I, I've lived this. I, I've lived this to the point that I, I always felt like God was kind of disappointed with me. I never felt like I could measure up and I was good enough. But something happened. I began to understand beloved identity that he no longer calls me forsaken. He calls me Hephzibah. Isaiah 62, 4, my delight is in you. Wow. If God be for you, who can be against you? Then he says, he said, but you have received the spirit of full acceptance enfolding you into the family of God and you will never feel orphaned. For as he rises up without his spirits, his spirit, uh, we join him in saying, the tender words of affection, beloved father. Now there's a there's an Aramaic word that the Greeks has transliterated, and it's Abba. Some scholars say that means Papa or Daddy. The Spirit has been sent forth into our hearts, calling God Papa, Daddy. That changes everything. That changes everything because he is worthy of all of our praise, yet he is our father. He is the one who takes responsibility for us. 